Today's podcast is on hospital-acquired pneumonia, HAP. Our four learning objectives are one, to rationalize antimicrobial selection for HAP using knowledge of the commonly implicated pathogens, two, to discern when MRSA coverage may be needed empirically, three, to recognize when oral step-down may be appropriate, and four, to apply knowledge of HAP to diagnose and manage a patient with new onset respiratory symptoms in hospital. And a quick review from last podcast. The actual difference between HAP and CAP is all in the microbiology, and that's because of the microbial environment of the hospital versus the community, which we've made mention of before. In community, our upper airways are colonized with gram-positive pathogens predominantly. In the hospital setting, gram-negative bacilli are much more abundant and will colonize the trachea and upper airways. Once a patient is admitted to hospital and switches to the nosocomial setting, their flora starts reflecting their new environment. By 48 hours after admission, a patient's flora has already begun to reflect the hospital flora. By 96 hours, the flora has almost entirely shifted. So, our definition of HAP fits with our understanding of this switch in flora. We consider HAP to be a pneumonia that onsets more than 48 hours after admission to hospital. This means the microaspiration event that kickstarted the pneumonia occurred after the patient's flora had shifted to a nosocomial flora. We can make brief mention of ventilator-associated pneumonia, or VAP, here too, because the same principles of flora switching apply. Once a patient has been on a ventilator for more than 48 hours, this is a ventilator-associated pneumonia, and being on a ventilator predisposes patients to even more resistant gram-negative pathogens. The pathogens we worry about with a HAP are Staph aureus, which is a significant cause of HAP, as well as gram-negative bacilli like E. coli and Klebsiella. When the patient is hospitalized for longer periods, so longer than five days is usually a cutoff that's used in the literature, more resistant gram-negatives may also be present. This can include pathogens like ESBL-producing E. coli and Klebsiella, or some of our space organisms like Serratia, Enterobacter, or Pseudomonas. This goes back to our Bugs and Drugs podcast. Think back to our community versus nosocomial gram-negative bacilli. And for ventilator-associated pneumonia, we worry about ESBL E. coli and Klebsiella, MRSA in space, along with even more resistant gram-negative pathogens, such as ICU nosocomials like Stenotrophomonas, which is a very resistant gram-negative. So if we want to visualize this, our microbial causes of pneumonia is something like a spectrum. Ranging from the least resistant organisms to most resistant, we have CAP, where our usual pathogen is streptomoniae, or maybe gram-negative cocci, like Moraxella and Haemophilus. Then we have early-onset HAP, where we have some shift to Staph aureus and gram-negative bacilli, but these tend to be less resistant. Then we have late-onset HAP, so that usually entails pathogens like Staph aureus and more resistant gram-negatives. And finally, at the most resistant end of the spectrum, we have a VAP, in which we have a higher risk for MRSA and even more resistant gram-negative bacilli. Understanding the involved microbes, we can start to rationalize treatment of HAP. First, we have to remember the difference between empiric and directed therapy. Unlike CAP, where the majority of patients do not require a sputum culture, in hospital, when it's logistically feasible and the patient is able to expectorate sputum, we should aim to obtain a sputum culture from patients with suspected HAP to direct therapy. With HAP, we can try to obtain an induced sputum, or if they're sick enough that they're going to ICU and being tubed, we can obtain an endotracheal aspirate post-intubation. With VAP, obtaining a culture is usually easy. The patient is intubated and we can obtain an endotracheal aspirate. So prior to having our culture results, we need to start empiric therapy. Our empiric treatment depends a bit on institutional microbiology, which can vary by hospital size and region, as well as whether the patient's on a medical surgical ward or in the ICU. But here in Alberta, in general, we are actually lucky with respect to microbe resistance compared to the USA and other parts of the world. Fortunately, with our lesser population density here in Western Canada, and probably a bit because of our less litigious culture of medicine here in Canada, we have less antibiotic resistance than other areas of the world. So we actually have two different categories of HAP. We have early onset HAP and later onset HAP. In Alberta, for early onset HAP in a hospitalized patient who is not critically ill, that is to say a patient whose pneumonia onsets prior to day five of admission but is still stable, 
we can consider using ceftriaxone, which will provide some coverage of methicillin-sensitive staph aureus and will also cover E. coli, Klebsiella, and less resistant gram-negatives. After five days of admission, we have to consider staph aureus and harder-hitting gram-negative pathogens, so we need to broaden our gram-negative coverage. At this point, for most patients, our empiric therapy would be piptazo, or if the patient has a true allergy to penicillin, an alternative like levofloxacin. In medical patients with HAP, we can treat with ceftriaxone if it's very early onset, prior to day five of admission, or piptazo, or amoxiclav if they don't need IV therapy, if the patient is beyond day five of admission. But again, this is all empiric therapy only. So next we should talk about empiric therapy in critically ill patients where we can't chance missing an organism. In this setting, we have two types of HAP patients, those who are in ICU for other reasons than develop a HAP, or those who develop a HAP and are transferred to ICU because of their HAP. In either setting, we would use high-dose piptazo to cover a HAP or even meropenem if the patient's truly unstable. If the patient was already in the ICU and developed HAP, we know the ICU is home to more resistant gram-negatives than a medical ward, and so the patient's flora will reflect that more resistant flora. There's also the obvious, that these patients have less reserve and a delay in treating HAP can push them over the edge if we miss the organism. So even though they might be critically ill from a non-respiratory cause, if they develop HAP in an ICU, usually we'll use piptazo or meropenem. And in the second scenario, if the patient wasn't in the ICU, but they were on a medical ward and transferred to ICU for their HAP, we would of course treat more aggressively as well and hit them with high-dose piptazo or meropenem because that would mean that the patient is critically ill from their HAP and we really can't afford to miss the organism. At that point, they're imminently at risk of a bad outcome from their pneumonia and we don't have wiggle room to miss the pathogen and adjust the therapy as per the patient's clinical course. We have to hit it up front. So we can see that our empiric therapy matches our concern for resistant pathogens, sort of corresponding to that spectrum we visualized earlier. CAP and early onset HAP, when the tracheal flora may still contain less resistant pathogens, can be treated with ceftriaxone. For late onset HAP, that onsets beyond day 5 of admission when the tracheal flora has more nosocomial gram-negative bacilli, we can treat with piptazo. For HAP, in a critically ill patient or VAP, we treat with high-dose piptazo or even meropenem as per patient risk factors and stability. So we've said staph aureus is one of the major causative pathogens in HAP, and so far we've only discussed coverage with beta-lactams, which would cover MSSA, not MRSA. So that brings us to the question of in whom we would cover MRSA empirically. We know that for the majority of patients, we're fine with ceftriaxone or piptazo alone, covering MSSA and gram-negatives. We would only cover MRSA empirically in select settings. One setting is if the patient is on a unit individually that has an MRSA prevalence of 20% or greater. For example, if the patient's on the 6th floor medicine ward at the Royal Alex, we would need to know that the prevalence of MRSA among staph aureus isolates from that unit over time is above 20% to merit empiric coverage of MRSA. But in many institutions in Canada, we don't know the unit prevalence of MRSA. And so for these situations where unit prevalence is not known, some guidelines would also suggest empiric coverage of MRSA. So for that hypothetical patient at the Alex, some guidelines would suggest treating that patient with empiric vancomycin for MRSA coverage along with piptazo, unless we knew the MRSA prevalence on the sixth floor medicine ward was less than 20%. But in most centers, this is not our practice in Canada, because our prevalence of MRSA throughout our institutions is far less than the USA, even if we don't know our individual unit prevalence. Some centers in the United States have prevalences of MRSA carriage as high as 50%. Here in Canada and here in Alberta, we don't have that same prevalence. So even if we don't know the prevalence, as long as the patient's stable, the majority of our patients don't need empiric MRSA coverage. So here in Canada, we would usually only cover MRSA empirically in the setting of critical illness. Again, in critically ill patients, we worry more about resistant pathogens and their risk for MRSA is higher. But even more compellingly, these patients are less stable, so we can't afford delays in treatment. So if a patient is being admitted to ICU with HAP, we would cover MRSA. 
If a patient's in the ICU for other reasons when they develop HAP or VAP and are unstable, we would cover MRSA. These patients just don't have the reserve to risk delays in therapy. Let's try a quick question. In which of the following patients would you suggest covering MRSA empirically? A. A 76-year-old patient with positive MRSA colonization nasal swabs, day four of hospital admission. He is two days post-op for a THR, requiring two liters of oxygen to main SATs above 95%. B. A 41-year-old patient, day nine of admission for non-necrotizing pancreatitis, recently diagnosed with HAP on four liters of oxygen to maintain SATs. C. A 58-year-old male with worsening respiratory status on six liters of oxygen and failing to maintain SATs. ICU is consulted. So let's look in the above stems and identify who's critically ill. Of our hypothetical patients above, C. The 58-year-old male with worsening respiratory status on six liters of oxygen and failing to maintain SATs on that, for whom we've consulted ICU, is really the only one who would perhaps require MRSA coverage. So now we know our empiric treatment. Ceftriaxone, for a limited few early on in admission, Piptazo, for patients who are beyond day five of admission when their HAP onsets, and Piptazo, or Meripenem, for critically ill patients. MRSA coverage for anybody from a unit with an MRSA prevalence of 20% or higher, or if critically ill and unstable. Right, so that summarizes our empiric therapy for HAP. But unlike CAP, many of our patients will have culture results to help us direct therapy. Not all of them, because we can't always feasibly obtain a sputum culture. But often in HAP, we will have culture results to help us reevaluate our antibiotics. So in that case, we look at our culture results, select our narrowest spectrum agent that covers the offending pathogen and has proven efficacy for pneumonia, and we treat for seven days. And oral step-down if we don't have cultures directing therapy? Oral step-down is pretty simple in this setting and follows our usual principles of oral step-down. Once our patient has improved clinically, as evidenced by fevers becoming lower grade and becoming more widely spaced, inflammatory markers coming down, oxygen requirements coming down, we can look at switching to oral therapy regardless of whether we have cultures or not. It's just easier if we have cultures for obvious reasons. So if we don't have cultures, we have to go back to our basic micro-knowledge. We know for most patients we are trying to cover gram-negatives along with staph aureus. And to do that, amoxiclav is a good option for oral step-down for most patients with HAP. Levofloxacin may be a reasonable alternative if cultures show a gram-negative that's not covered by amoxiclav or if the patient has a true allergy to amoxicillin or penicillin. So now our end of podcast case. Like always, the clinical decision-making matrix is attached as a handout to the podcast. Mr. LB is a 63-year-old male who's been admitted to hospital for the past week post-STEMI after being transferred from a rural site. He was lysed and underwent PCI urgently with stents to the proximal and distal LAD and the left marginal, and he has been stable on his cardiac medication since intervention. Over the past 48 to 72 hours, he has begun producing increased sputum and has spiked fevers, once yesterday and twice today. He reports feeling unwell and sweating. You obtain a chest x-ray, which shows bilateral consolidations, larger on the right than on the left. Respirate today is up to 24. He is on 3 liters of oxygen to maintain SATs above 95%. For his vitals, his respirate is 24. While he is on 3 liters of oxygen right now, throughout the day, his oxygen requirements have gone up as high as 5 liters a minute from 2 liters a minute yesterday. Tmax in 24 hours is 38.7. He is hemodynamically stable. His EKG shows deep inferior Q waves, leads 2, 3, AVF, consistent with previous infarct. For his labs, his lights and serum creatinine are stable, tropes are negative, his CRP is up to 189. His white blood cells are up to 18 today and are neutrophil predominant, having previously been hovering around 11 to 13. CBC is otherwise unremarkable.
So to summarize, we have a patient on day seven of admission for initially a STEMI who began manifesting new respiratory symptoms and fevers around day five of hospitalization. Chest x-ray shows a consolidation and inflammatory markers are elevated. So what's your differential diagnosis and what are our next steps? Okay, so let's work through our top three differentials. We have a patient post-STEMI who may have suffered significant damage to his left ventricle. Left-sided heart failure with backflow into his lungs could produce the respiratory symptoms and chest x-ray findings. Or he may be having a repeat ACS, as this can be accompanied by elevated inflammatory markers and increased temperature, though an elevated temperature is less likely to sustain from an ACS and our patient has had repeated fevers. True, the fevers are fairly persistent to be from an ACS. But given the patient's a cardiac patient with new respiratory symptoms, cardiac causes should be ruled out. So differential one would be a new cardiac event or acute heart failure. Given the patient's negative troponin and no acute EKG findings, we can rule out a new ACS. So now let's consider acute heart failure. Our patient's at risk for this post-STEMI. From a clinical presentation standpoint, he has respiratory symptoms and a positive chest x-ray, which could point to heart failure in the right clinical setting. It might be tempting to try to use the wording on the radiology report to point us in one direction. For example, our patient's report says consolidation, which sounds more like pneumonia than heart failure. But truthfully, radiologists often try to distinguish between mnemonic consolidations versus fluid overload versus other diagnoses on chest x-ray, but to do so, we really need the clinical correlation. So while chest x-ray report may say consolidation or pneumonia, all this tells us is the chest x-ray has positive findings, and we need to clinically discern the source of the findings, not rely on radiology interpretation. So our patient has a positive chest x-ray, productive cough, shortness of breath, and elevated respirate, and these could all plausibly point to left-sided heart failure in this cardiac patient. But despite being at risk for AHF and having several concordant features with possible left-sided heart failure, our patient has some significant discordant features, one being that his respiratory symptoms are accompanied by new-onset fevers. We also have increased CRP and rising white blood cells. These features, in particular the fevers and steadily rising WBCs, point away from AHF. While white blood cells may be elevated in heart failure from stress demargination, steadily rising in the setting of new fevers points to infection or inflammatory condition. Okay, so not looking like a cardiac cause. The fevers in the labs point us towards an inflammatory cause or an infectious cause. And since our patient could be at risk for aspiration post-STEMI, Plausible inflammatory or infectious causes would include either pneumonitis or pneumonia. We haven't discussed pneumonitis yet in any of our podcasts. Pneumonitis is frequently misdiagnosed as pneumonia in hospital because both present with similar findings, so they can be very hard to distinguish. But one important difference is that pneumonitis is a sterile process. Aspiration of gastric contents leads to chemical injury of the trachea and the bronchial tree, with a robust inflammatory response that will be evidenced by elevated white blood cell count and CRP and will also be accompanied by respiratory symptoms, fevers, and a consolidation on chest x-ray. So, pretty similar to pneumonia from a clinical presentation standpoint. But it's important to distinguish it from pneumonia, because while antibiotics will be helpful for bacterial pneumonia, they have no role in pneumonitis, which is a sterile process. And really, one of the only ways to distinguish pneumonitis from pneumonia is by temporality, symptom onset and offset. This can help us make decisions around whether or not we should initiate antibiotics or continue treatment with antibiotics. Okay, so timing of symptoms. Since pneumonitis is a chemical burn, symptoms would onset quickly after the aspiration event, whereas with pneumonia, the onset is more delayed. Because to develop a pneumonia following the aspiration event, we need bacteria to hit a critical inoculum, with subsequent immune response leading to symptoms and consolidation. Right, so pneumonia usually takes around 48 hours after an aspiration event to hit full swing. The deterioration is usually slower compared to a pneumonitis, where the chemical burns produce symptoms pretty much right away. Okay, and... Just like it has a quicker onset, pneumonitis also has a quicker offset. This is actually one of the most important ways that we can distinguish between pneumonitis and pneumonia. 
In pneumonitis, after 48 hours, the patient usually has had some dramatic improvement, and often the consolidation on chest x-ray will have resolved significantly. This is in contrast to pneumonia, where usually it takes 48 hours for the symptoms to go full swing, and the chest x-ray often takes weeks to resolve. So this is helpful from a stewardship standpoint, because if a patient deteriorates and we initiate empiric therapy, a repeat chest x-ray and following the patient could help us distinguish a pneumonitis from a pneumonia. And if symptoms and chest x-ray findings resolve within a couple of days, we can then determine this is pneumonitis and stop antibiotics. Right, so to tie this back to our patient, he sounds like he's getting progressively worse over a 48-hour period. His fevers are increasing in frequency and respiratory symptoms are worsening progressively. The fact that he seems as though he's gearing up to a peak as opposed to peaking and then improving quickly would point more to a pneumonia than a pneumonitis. So our most probable diagnosis is hospital-acquired pneumonia, given the clear concordant features as well as the lack of discordant features. So now for our next steps. One, we should try to obtain sputum culture, though this won't always be possible. Two, we could consider drawing blood cultures, but for our patient, these are likely to be low yield, given he is not consistently febrile and is not experiencing rigors. Literature has suggested blood culture yield is higher when drawn while a patient is febrile and experiencing rigors chills. Three, we need to start empiric therapy. Right, so we need to figure out our empiric therapy. So first of all, let's discern if this is early onset or late onset HAP. Well, given he's been hospitalized for a week and symptoms began around 48 hours ago, this is a late onset HAP because his symptoms onset more than five days after he was admitted to hospital. Because he is a late onset HAP, he requires coverage of staph aureus and good gram-negative coverage. If we think back to our Bugs and Drugs podcast, the gram-negatives likely to be in a nosocomial environment are our more resistant gram-negatives. Our PEC organisms, Proteus, E. coli, and Klebsiella, are still relevant gram-negatives, but given his hospitalized status, he has risk factors for more resistant organisms. This would include organisms like ESBL E. coli or ESBL Klebsiella, which are resistant to third-generation cephalosporins, or more resistant gram-negatives like Acinetobacter, Morganella, or Pseudomonas. So our backbone is likely to be Piptazo until we get culture results. If his oxygen requirements were low and he was fairly stable, since he's right on the cusp of early versus late-onset HAP, it would be reasonable to start ceftriaxone, but this patient would likely get Piptazo. Either ceftriaxone or Piptazo would likely be reasonable, but in practice, I would say he'd probably get Piptaz. But we also need to discern, does this patient require MRSA coverage? He's on a medical ward, and we don't know the prevalence of MRSA on the unit. While he's becoming progressively more symptomatic and needs treatment, he doesn't have signs of hemodynamic instability or respiratory failure. So we probably don't need empiric MRSA coverage for our patient. So, obtain sputum cultures, consider drawing blood cultures, and start piptazo monotherapy since we don't need to cover MRSA. Right. And the final thing for this patient is I would keep in mind that pneumonitis can be difficult to distinguish from pneumonia. The timing of a symptom onset seems most in keeping with pneumonia because it does seem as though it's been brewing over the past two days. But I would still keep pneumonitis in mind, and if my patient's clinical status and x-ray showed dramatic improvement over the next 24 hours, I would revisit pneumonitis as a possible diagnosis and reassess antibiotics at that time accordingly. And if he improves enough that his timeline becomes more in keeping with pneumonitis, we can cut out antibiotics. Yeah, and if on the other hand his clinical course seems more in keeping with bacterial pneumonia, as we're suspecting, we should still de-escalate therapy if we get culture results back that allow us to do so. Or we should step down to oral antibiotics once the patient has improved, so once his fever has become lower grade and his inflammatory markers have come down. All right, so our podcast take-homes. One, HAP is a pneumonia that onsets more than 48 hours into hospital admission when tracheal flora begins taking on the hospital flora of staph aureus and increased gram-negative presence. Two, early-onset HAP less than five days into admission can be treated empirically with ceftriaxone, while late-onset HAP should be treated empirically with piptazo or with either piptazo or meropenem 
if the patient is critically ill. Three, MRSA coverage should be provided for patients who develop HAP while admitted to a ward with high prevalence of MRSA or those who are unstable and critically ill. And four, oral step-down can be considered once the patient shows reduced fevers, declining inflammatory markers, and improving respiratory status. So that concludes our HAP podcast, and our next podcast will be on skin and soft tissue infections.